0: European Union has not treated us well.
1: Stupid
2: European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you
1: refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom.
2: I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate
1: change. In this episode, an interview with Lucas and Andre, the brains behind Proud Bear, one of the funniest and most effective responses to populism to date. We also speak with Columbia Law School professor Anu Bradford about why Britain is bound to remain under the EU's sway long after Brexit. First, Tom and I discuss where the hardest of the hardcore Brexiteers got their campaign funds, and why having loads of money doesn't make it any easier to make a positive case for the EU. So Tom, has uh, has Britain become a kind of Russian protectorate?
2: <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. I mean, you've got such a bizarre kind of coming together of various forces in in the Brexit space David Cameron made the you know the historically truly appalling decision of actually calling the referendum but the other interesting one is what then happens once the referendum has been decided on and the referendum is in place and the campaigns get started up you get these two leave campaigns one official one unofficial the unofficial one being called leave.eu and this guy called Aaron Banks turns up who's been bankrolling UKIP to a small degree, I mean, or relatively small degree up until that point. So he's, he's a mate of Nigel Farage's. He's a wheeler dealer businessman, some fairly dodgy sounding business background in Africa, a couple of UK insurance companies. And he gives nine million quid to Leave.eu, to the Leave campaign. And indeed, once you involve services and a number of other things, they reckon the overall spend from banks was more like 12 million. And
1: Leave.eu was putting out not just myths, but absolute hateful stuff against the European Union, no?
2: Not only against the European Union, but, but anyone who happened to be standing around. I mean, they uh, some of it was actively racist. A lot of it was yeah, very, very heavily anti-European and based on, you know, absolute rubbish. The straight bananas story that was famously made up by Boris Johnson. If we take back control, if we take back control on June the 23rd, we can also get rid of so much of the pointless rules and regulations that are holding back yeah! this here mentions he mentions bananas it is absurd that we are told that you cannot have but ban- you cannot sell bananas in bunches of more than two or three bananas you cannot you cannot yes. sell bananas with abnormal curvature of the fingers why should they tell us yes. why
1: should they tell us how powerful
2: our- and then you've got some poor choices are made about how to do the remain campaign that's for sure but then there's the leave campaign and leaf.eu received the largest political donation in British history. Now, we should be clear that more and more money has gone into British politics over time, like politics everywhere. And in fact, in the 2017 election, so the last election that we had, or we've had a lot recently, that was the biggest fundraising election in British history. And about 40 million of donations went into political parties in the run-up to that election. Which is right? peanuts
1: by American standards. Yeah, totally. But it, but it is, sig- yeah. Yeah,
2: it's like one house race <laughs> <laughs> by U.S. standards. Still the biggest single donation was made by banks to the Leave.eu campaign. Where did he get the money? So this is the interesting question. This money came out of a bank account on the Isle of Man, this $9 million, and threw his company into the Leave campaign. Now, it looks increasingly like it wasn't his money. So the National Criminal Agency in the UK have now started a criminal investigation into Aaron Banks. And it is clear that none of his companies have been doing terribly well of late,
1: right? Sounds like he has all the business acumen of a Donald Trump. Right.
2: There's definitely
1: some... Looks pretty rich, (laughs) but... Right,
2: right, exactly. And he has obviously pushed very hard to say, you know, it wasn't the Russians. He went on the Andrew Marr interview programme on BBC television, and literally the first thing he said was, I just want to be clear, it wasn't the Russians. Well, then, before we start, I'd just like to say, absolutely, for the record, there was no Russian money and no interference of any type. All right, well, let's follow so the I just money I want to be as as absolutely were. clear about that. So where did the money come from? It went... So <laughs> that begs a whole set of questions, like, so was it the Russians? <laughs> um... And who knows? It could have made a really, really significant difference if they hadn't had that funding. And if it turns out to be foreign sources, that is going to be surely hugely significant in the debate.
1: Agreed. But all this talk about Leave.EU's poisonous legacy, I mean, ever since the Brexit vote, the polls have been flatlining. It's like people are locked into this mentality of you're a leaver, you're a remainer this is a little bit like, you know, where you have this base group of people who simply cannot be moved. I mean, you can think about the chutzpah of Donald Trump saying, where you know, I could, I could stand, stand in, in the middle, middle of Fifth, fifth avenue. avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, OK? You know, I fear the same in Britain. Like, Aaron Banks could be picking up cash on a Russian sub parked off the Isle of Wight and Brexit supporters would just shrug.
2: There is polling to show that if you reran the referendum... You'd be looking more like a 60% stay 60% remain, 40% leave. A huge number of, of Labour voters um, have, now, have now changed their minds. A lot of conservative voters who voted leave, and UKIP voters who voted leave have not changed their mind. Right? And in fact, have doubled down on their position. But you still, again, you have you have some who have swayed. So there's probably like 20, 25 percent of the country who has become more and more and more entrenched in a defensive posture against essentially saying, no, absolutely, you know, the referendum outcome was the referendum outcome. We must leave.
1: It raises an issue for me here about the rules you play by when you spend money on political communications, not just the issue of how much money, you know, you have at your disposal or where it's from. Here's a bit of silly math. The European Commission's spending on communicating is around, you know, plus or minus 140 million euros a year with some estimates of overall EU spending of up to half a billion. So divide that half billion by the 28 member states and you get around the same figure that (laughs) Aaron Banks gave the Brexit cause. So why was the Brexit money apparently so much more effective and the EU such a hard sell? Well, of course, there are dozens of uh, reasons. There's Britain's island identity that Euroskeptics love to invoke, the sheer complexity of Europe. Even Barack Obama couldn't resist making fun of Brussels in a press conference he held with David Cameron a few years back. I have now been president for five and a half years, and I've learned a thing or two about uh, the European Union, the European Commission, the European Council. Sometimes I get them mixed up, but the, to the, club. But the, basic, <laughs> but the basic principle... And then that... there's how successive U.K. governments have bashed Brussels and encouraged their citizens to look down their noses at Europe and at its leaders. The right-wing British press, which portrays Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission's president, as essentially a drunken clown. There was no question of Juncker, who actually does have charm, ever going to Britain to campaign in favor of Remain. But, but, but don't underestimate just how hard it is for the EU itself to spend its money on communications effectively. The constraints are formidable and broadly self-imposed. European mandarins are highly attuned to Factual correctness, yet they are painfully shy about calling out a wayward member state government for fear of a backlash. So you often get this goody-two-shoes communication that has an anesthetizing effect. Just compare that form of communication with the Brexiteers' make-believe math, wickedly racist and wholly false insinuations about migrants arriving en masse in Britain, and their other outrageous claims— you know, about the National Health Service getting a massive Brexit windfall. And one of the interesting things to think about in this whole Aaron Banks story is how in the hands of the EU, money on communications gets burned up, whereas in the hands of a cowboy operator like Banks and his ilk, it seems to just turn to gold. So if the EU can't play dirty, can someone else do it for them? And that brings us to our interview where we get to meet These two brave men, or should I say brave bears, who have gone underground in Brexit Britain to play the pro-European anti-Brexit communications game entirely differently.
2: In this next segment, we'll bring you two of the funniest bears west of the Volga. If you've been wandering the streets of London recently, you may have been surprised to see billboard posters of Vladimir Putin encouraging the British people to celebrate the success of Brexit instead of being so miserable about it. And indeed, your reaction may have been an initial, what the fuck? Well, today we're going to talk to two of the people who created Proud Bear, the inspired comic geniuses behind the posters and an accompanying website, and the heavily accented social media posts, giving credit for Brexit where it may well be due, to the Russian secret services. On its face, the Proud Bears are sharing with Britain the joy that Russia and its leader feel about Brexit. But in doing so, the Bears have done more than anyone else to help turn the logic of Brexit on its head. What they are playing on is a grim reality, that links between hardcore Brexiteers... Russian interference and the US alt-right are becoming increasingly clear as the truth behind the UK referendum campaign unfolds. When they're not wearing their bear costumes, Lucas and Andre, not their real names, have other lives and understandably wish to remain anonymous, so we've altered their voices. I first asked Andre about the inspiration for Proud Bear.
1: We, uh, Lucas
3: and I decided, having observed the lack of action by the UK government in investigating potential Russian interference in the Brexit vote, we decided to use satire to try to get the story out there. So we did what any self-respecting activist would do, which is to set up a fake GRU Russian military intelligence hacking operation called Proud Bear, which was inspired, obviously, by Fancy Bear, and we create an entire ecosystem um, around this group. So we have a website, we have a Twitter account, we have identities, um, and then we designed three posters Billboard posters, which we had printed up and placed in numerous locations around London to highlight Russian interference in the Brexit vote. So one of them had Putin, that famous mean Putin, winking and uh, clutching a Russian flag with the words, Let's celebrate a red, white, and blue Brexit, a play off the trickle or colours of the Russian flag. Another one, uh, had the same picture with Brexit means Brexit with uh, the second Brexit spelled in Cyrillic text. And the third one was that famous picture, um, British people will know this, some of your foreign uh, listeners might not, but of Boris Johnson hanging off a zip wire, clutching not British flags, but Russian flags with words, thank you, Boris next. Now we put these up um, around London and pretty soon it went viral. We got many, many hundreds of retweets of our picture of them. And the idea was to begin a conversation about potential Russian interference in the, um, in the Brexit vote uh, and also to begin a, a, a crowdfunder where we're trying to raise £55,000. To place an advert on the biggest digital billboard in Europe, which is the J C Desu billboard in Waterloo Station in London, and the billboard that we want to place there is uh, Vladimir Putin, the topless famous picture of Vladimir Putin astride Big Ben with the words. Taking back control. So that's proud bear. We are a GRU Russian intelligence operation, um, and we're trying to celebrate uh, the um, the impact that we made in the Brexit referendum.
2: I mean, obviously, what's behind this is a kind of reverse propaganda, right? As you said, this is satire. This is using humour. How do you think this plays into the conversation? Like, how does this kind of how does that work?
4: Well, there is a mountain of evidence. Out there on Russian interference, whether it's the the huge troll farm, troll farm operations coming out of St. Petersburg, or whether it's some of the big question marks around uh, money going to far right extremist groups, not just in Britain but you know across Europe, and as we've seen in the in the states, a whole bunch of potential interference there. The evidence is there. But we felt that it hadn't yet reached this threshold, and it hasn't yet, of action, at least in the UK. We don't yet have a, a Mueller inquiry. We don't have anyone taking this on seriously. And so rather than add to that mountain of, of serious conversation, which unfortunately isn't breaking through, uh, we wanted to try a different route that could hopefully reach people in a different way, but that also spoke to the absurdity of the situation. You know, we have an entire Brexit campaign founded on this notion of taking back control, taking back sovereignty, and yet here we have a belligerent power which has not only used chemical weapons on our streets, effectively, as we saw in Salisbury, but is also being allowed to get get away with interference in this Brexit referendum without any sort of serious investigation. So the satire route was really about trying to, yet... tickle part of the population into revisiting this serious, this absolutely critical issue and not just let it pass.
2: And I mean, what's been interesting is some of the reactions to this. As you said, it's gone viral, retweets all over the place. You've had a lot of media coverage in both the kind of left-leaning and right-leaning press in the UK. How have, to the extent that any, there's been any Russian response to this, have you seen any of that? Has there, has there been any kind of pushback on it, or attempts to reframe it?
3: Uh, Andre- there's been quite a lot of attention in the UK, but there's been a really a huge amount of attention online in. Russia. And one of the reasons for that is that we put what's called an Easter egg into our website. That is to say it was a secret page that could be found by people who were a bit tech savvy and it was written in perfect Russian because we reached out to allies who would be able to help us to do that. And when you translated it it moved away from the satire of Proud Bear and actually explained in our own voices, the voices of Lucas and Andre, why we were doing this. And it explained that we were concerned about Russian interference in Western democracies, um, rather like we observed in the 2016 US election and in the Brexit vote, but also about the authoritarian tendencies of Putin in Russia itself. And We were really reaching out and saying we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are campaigning against Putin, there are many brave journalists, many of whom have paid uh, with their lives in Russia as well. So there's been quite a lot of coverage from the Russian liberal press, such as it exists. And also, surprisingly, for us, there was a big six or seven minute piece on, I think it's called Vesti TV, which is Russian state television, where they picked apart every single Aspect of our satire and went through all of our assets. So, a reminder Proud Bear he affects to be a special Spetsnatch GRU intelligence operation that worked to bring about Brexit and now it's boasting about it. And this Vesti uh, TV report went through our website and our videos and absolutely everything and broke it apart and described it, I'm told by someone who speaks Russian, as classic English humor. And there was a an amusing moment for us um, where the Russian um, TV news anchor was sitting next to a screenshot of our video and the words emblazoned on Russian TV said, people of Tiny Island, it's time to celebrate Brexit. So there's been an interesting reaction in Russia as well, both from the state TV, but also from, as I said, the liberal media, where they've really got into this and to a certain extent enjoyed it. And I think that's, that's the key thing in the UK as well. People have really quite enjoyed this. And when Lucas and I discussed actually doing this, we did say Brexit coverage is so morose and depressing and high octane and brutal and people are being really nasty to each other and we wanted to do something a bit funny as well as getting this message across that Russian intelligence actually has been really brazen in its interference in Western democracies and this is something that we wanted to communicate you know that see, it's hiding in plain sight, it's right front of us and they're not really trying or not going really to great lengths to try to hide it there have been tens of thousands of twitter accounts both in america and britain that are trying to interfere in our democracies it's not a secret and so we thought by being one of those units to set them up and boasting about it and putting billboards across london to celebrate the uh, collaboration between the putin regime and brexiteers that we would actually bring that message across that we really do need that miller inquiry as lucas said
2: lucas What's your favourite gag? What are the pieces of this that you're most pleased with?
4: <laughs> that's, that's a great question. And, and we do find ourselves uh, giggling a lot at, at, <laughs> at our own jokes, unfortunately, uh, because there aren't that many other people we can share them with. But I guess my favourite is, um, as Andre said, we have this hidden Easter egg message on the website. You have to view the source of the website to see it and when when that popped up and and certain people were like oh wow we found this message look what it says we responded by saying michael click of our our um our webmaster said it's a cia hacking operation and he's he's been sent on a forever holiday in siberia that still gives me a tickle every time that pops up somewhere on twitter so yeah sending thoughts out to michael click of wherever he is these days the point is obviously as andre said to to try and make people laugh into the serious subject. There is the absurdity element, at least for me. You know, we are in this emperor's new clothes situation where if anybody dares look, I mean, look, this is ridiculous. We have all this mountain of evidence. And nobody's doing anything about it. So it's part of me that thinks you can't actually approach this subject in a very serious way. Our politics have reached a level of such, such absurdity of ignoring all of this stuff that you can only really enter into this area by laughing at it.
2: How do you think the EU should respond at this point? It's quite clear that British politics and British democracy was externally engineered to a fairly significant extent during the Brexit referendum. How should the EU be responding?
3: Andre. I think the the, the, the EU, really, in terms of Russian interference, needs to focus on defending its own democracies, I would say. And we can't rely on them to defend our democracy. So, you know, if you look at the external borders of the EU, they do push up against Russia, and Russia's cyber warfare operations go to the heart of European capitals. It's pretty clear that they tried to interfere in the French election, for example. Um, It's very clear that they have allies in Viktor Orban and others. So the EU faces a profound threat from Russian interference there's a very good chance that we're going to be leaving the eu on march the 29th and we will have to deal with this problem on our own in a sense and this is one reason why i was keen to do this not uh, to do proud ben not just to talk about potential russian interference but also to make the point that we are in britain geopolitically a vastly more vulnerable state than we previously were if you look at what happened with salisbury the way that we can fight back against russia as lucas said launching what turned out to be a chemical weapons attack on the on the streets of uh, of a small English city is by having coordinated sanctions with the EU. That option is going to fall away from us relatively soon and we are going to struggle to find allies to defend ourselves against a an expansionist Russia that really threatens Britain's liberal democratic interests. I would say as well that the EU the EU referendum was a precursor for I think what is going to come. This is a story not just about Aaron Banks and Putin and Fancy Bear, aka Proud Bear, etc. This is a story about the tech giants and the extent to which our our information ecosystem and our democracy is being hacked and that we face the prospect of liberal democracy being chipped away by these new technologies. And the only way that we can defend ourselves is with regulation and legislation. And until we recognize there's a problem, we're not going to get those things. And so what you have at the moment is mounting evidence that that kind of attack happened in the run up to June 2016. But because there are no political incentives to investigate it, because the prime minister does not want the truth to be found out about this. For example, she, she blocked a security services investigation into our banks. Because there is no great political wind behind a comprehensive Mueller-style investigation, we're going blithely into the next election and the election after that. We are not ready for what happens next. And of course, this isn't a right left issue. If there was to be a general election next year, it's just as likely that Russian interference would concentrate on promoting uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party than it would promote voting uh, whoever leads the conservative party at that point so really we need to come together and see if that we can get some political momentum behind a Mueller-style inquiry
2: andre's just laid out very clearly this is an ongoing threat it's that combination of the role of the tech giants and essentially a set of foreign powers russia but there are certainly others as well who are starting to exploit the weaknesses essentially of that technology to to interfere in democracies this is Clearly, going to happen around the European elections in 2019, and there's already huge amounts of evidence that, that that's an ongoing effort uh, by the Russians and many others. Do you think Proud Bear can play a role in actually opening up some of that debate as well?
4: That's an interesting question. I think, um, as Andre said, Proud Bear was established with this very focused aim of trying to get a UK style Muller inquiry to investigate that Russian interference. But obviously, that resonates into future um, elections like the European one that you mentioned in May next year and all sorts of other national elections too. So, whether that's Proud Bear or not, and Proud Bear is going to have some more creative and hopefully humorous interventions in the UK, ideally with that mega billboard in Waterloo Station, that's all going to happen. But we feel passionately that obviously the wider interference in those European elections next year and in national elections. For the foreseeable future, needs to be defended against that interference, and whether that's Proud Bear or some other effort, which you know I know personally, and having spoken to Andre, we would love to support wherever that comes from. That's an absolutely critical piece of you know political activism, really, that needs to be happening today.
2: Well, you have been massively entertained by Proud Bear. You've done a brilliant job of using that satire. So thanks a lot. Take care, Lucas. Take care, Andre. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Thank you.
1: Bye bye. We're going to give the last word on Brexit and a chance to give a last wink to Russia to Professor Anu Bradford. Anu shuttles between her native Finland and New York, where she teaches at Columbia Law School and where she directs the European Legal Studies Center. Anu has made her mark in numerous ways, including with a landmark article about how the EU is the world's regulatory superpower. She called this power the Brussels Effect, drawing a parallel with the California effect. The basic idea is that a state like California, or a region like Europe, wields so much economic clout that its tougher standards over, say, the environment, privacy, and labor rights, get adopted by the rest of the world, a little bravely, Anu published that paper six years ago at the height of the European debt crisis. Deep divisions remain among member states, and the rise of the populists threatens the ability of the bloc to continue to integrate. Anu talked over the summer about U.S. misperceptions of the EU. She argues that the Brussels effect will survive and even thrive after Brexit.
0: I actually think that all those forces and the changes uh, in the world that you were uh, describing, if anything, they reinforce the Brussels effect. So let's take Brexit. Um, so one of the, uh, the arguments that I made recently, which I think gives me the reason to revisit the Brussels effect, and I'm actually now working on a book version of the article. Brexit is interesting in the sense that one of their false promises during the campaign was that Brexit will liberate the UK from EU's regulatory uh, leash, and uh, that will not happen because of the Brussels effect. UK continues to need the access to the single market. UK companies therefore continue to be bound by the EU regulations. And the logic of the Brussels effect suggests that given the scale economies, given the, the importance of the EU market, it is impossible for them to avoid the EU regulations and often too costly to take advantage of lower regulations in the UK and elsewhere. So the chemical industry have already indicated they continue to follow the EU's chemical regulation the reach. The UK government has conceded as much as to say that Brexit doesn't really mean Brexit when it comes to privacy. That's going to be the same with pharmaceutical industry. Many of these industries still continue to be bound by EU rules. So what we see is that the UK is just not going to have say over the content of those rules. They become a rule taker as opposed to rule maker. And and I think they will be living in an all the more regulated Brussels.
1: Let's take Anu at face value and assume that Brussels can exercise real influence. But why doesn't this global heft burnish the EU's reputation among Europeans who hold the project in such low regard, like those who voted for Brexit?
0: I I blame the Brexit campaign, which was, I think, intellectually so dishonest and and really failed to communicate to people what they are getting out of the EU and what is the alternative reality that you, you open up with your no vote. Politicians at the national level are not helping. There is this tendency that every time something is wrong, they're very prepared to blame the Brussels. Whereas if something is really good, they take the credit. So I think sometimes the blame and the credit is misattributed, that our citizens don't really know that it is the European Union that is ultimately providing those guarantees and 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 those public goods that they care about to them so so partially I think it is the communication of the mixed messages that the the EU institutions are trying to communicate it but the politicians that are closer to the people deliver a somewhat more mixed message
1: what are the main misperceptions of the European Union that Anu encounters among her students and colleagues in the United States
0: there's one that is that EU is in decline and EU just doesn't matter, that they do not need to worry about it. I remember a student um, once make a casual remark to me saying, why would I take EU law? It's like taking Soviet Union law in 1989. So that's, I think, the, the, the worst misperception. But I would say most Columbia students are more informed than that. But there's still this idea that the, the Asia is rising, so even the economic opportunities are elsewhere and they don't really need to understand the EU. But I think, given the regulatory efforts, if you if you now look at the main economic news about Facebook and privacy, about Google's fine in antitrust, people are realizing those are coming from Brussels. So, to some extent, that is shifting. So that would take me to the second misperception, and I don't know if it's a complete misperception, but I think there is a the very credible narrative that there is a misperception there. Is that what is motivating the EU? That EU would have this big. Uh, campaign against the American innovative companies. That what is driving the Brussels and what is driving its regulatory efforts is this desire to um, uh, level the playing field, to provide an edge to European companies that are not as innovative, um, that we, we uh, somehow can scale back the Silicon Valley's uh, influence in the world, Partially because they are American companies and Europe can't keep up. So that's something that I also feel strongly about correcting. I think the narrative in, in reality, it is not one of protectionism. I can't say that there's never protectionism. Protectionism is well alive in the world. But um, to portray all this as this big protectionist coup, um, I, I think it's false.
1: That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EUSCreams, and like us on Facebook. You'll also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.